Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Chad Griffiths, and he has been an industrial real estate broker since 2005. And over the past 16 years, he has completed over 500 transactions with clients ranging from local companies to large institutional owners. His primary focus is in industrial real estate. And so I'm super excited to have him on the show and join us here today. Welcome to the show, Chad. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Eileen. So Chad, share with us a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate. Yeah, as mentioned in the introduction, I started in industrial real estate in 2005. I started as a broker and in 2014 is when I started building my own portfolio. So I've got partners on on every property that I own, but over the past seven or eight years now, we've built a portfolio of about $20 million worth of industrial real estate and we've got a lot of debt on there as well. So it's not as glamorous as it sounds, but uh, it's I, I'm absolutely passionate about the industry, both from being a broker, which I still actively do on a day-to-day basis, as well as being an investor who've where I've got the majority of the eggs in one basket. So it's probably not the best advice that a financial planner would give, but because I'm so passionate and I and I think that I have high level knowledge about it, I'm comfortable uh, with it. But I also just love talking about this topic in general as well. So give us an overview about the industrial market right now. Where How does it look like to you? And are you continuing to be optimistic about where it's going? It's, it's quite interesting uh, from the standpoint that a lot of people at least until a few years ago, had very little understanding about what industrial real estate was. And a saying that I like to to tell is I, I was talking to a guy about industrial real estate and he said, the only thing I know about industrial real estate is when I make a wrong turn off the highway and I end up <laughs> in an industrial park and I just try to find my way back to the, to the highway. Uh, I think that that probably describes a lot of people, at least until a few years ago, where it gained more prominence with supply chain issues. And we're probably all familiar with big warehouses that are off major highways now, like an Amazon distribution center or whatever it is. So I, I think industrial real estate has has gone from being that behind the scenes industry, which is huge, uh, but still working out of the spotlight to now all of a sudden being a lot more prominent. And with that gain in exposure and just more people being familiar with it, it's attracted a lot more investors to it. So there could be a small investor that has a Perhaps they have a small multifamily holding or they perhaps have a number of houses and they just want to diversify into another industry. Now we've got people that are much more familiar with it that want to get into it. And there's also a lot more institutional capital. So the largest property owner in the world actually is a company called Prologis. And they're a publicly traded real estate investment trust or a REIT. Largest property owner in the entire world. They have about a billion square feet worth of warehouse space all across the world. And to just conceptualize how big a billion square feet is, when you think of like an average house being 2,000 square feet, compare that to their portfolio, which is about a billion square feet. So it's there's opportunities from the small investor all the way up to the to the, these largest companies in the world to do it. And that's all come on the back of e-commerce, getting a lot of uh, exposure lately. We all went through that over the last couple of years of transitioning more to online shopping. 
So it's gone to a point now where it's become a lot more popular. So I think that we might be at the crest of the market right now, just because there's been so much money that's poured into the system. I think that if we do go into a little bit of a recessionary time, that might stall the aggressive growth that's occurred over the last few years. But I'm still very bullish long term on it. Even if there are some temporary aberrations caused by this economic slowdown, I'm still quite bullish on the asset class just because of how instrumental it is to everything that we do, even though we don't always think about it. You mentioned that more and more investors are being attracted to this asset class. Why do you think that is and what's driving and pulling in the investors into industrial? I think the main reason that people are attracted to it is it's just a lot more stable. So if you compare it to other asset classes like office or retail, and you look at some of the fluctuations that those two asset classes have gone through in the past few years, industrial all of a sudden looks like a very steady asset class. It's not sexy. It's not like that trophy asset where it's like a 80 story office tower in the middle of a downtown market. It's tucked away in an industrial park, or in some cases it's right off the highway. But for the most part, it's a very steady, consistent asset. And the tenants that come with this, to juxtapose it against multifamily, another uh, commercial asset class, a lot of multifamily has a lot of turnover in it. So they might have tenants that are turning over every every six months or every year or every couple of years. Whereas in industrial, you might have a five or a 10 year tenant in there. So I, I think that it's those two main things which have caused people to awaken to the possibilities that are that are inherent in industrial. It's stability. It's a stable asset class, which is a histor- has performed historically well over a number of years. And that long-term lease that, that's in there, and quite often you have a large company that's in there versus like a small single residential tenant. So there's just some comfort in having a long-term tenant in an asset class, which is is quite stable. It's difficult to hit home runs in industrial real estate, but it's also a very safe place to have your money if you're doing it correctly. Are the leases typically like a triple net lease with the tenants? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is, that is a great point as well. And I don't want to overwhelm anyone that's listening that perhaps is very comfortable with that multifamily or residential side but doesn't necessarily understand commercial that well. So I'll just try to be as broad as I can. But by all means, if, if I'm not clear, if you want me to expand, I'm happy to as well. But most commercial leases in general, and this, this applies to office, retail, or industrial, are structured in that triple net way where a tenant will pay one amount to the landlord. And it's typically called base rent or net rent. That's a contracted amount of rent. It could be flat, could be $10,000 a month, for the whole term of the lease, or there could be escalations in there. But whatever that rent stipulates in the lease, that's set for the entire lease. The other part is that the landlord charges all the tenants. And if it's just one tenant, it's very easy to calculate. But the landlord will charge property taxes, building insurance, common area maintenance, and management fee, either back to one tenant or to all the tenants on a proportionate share. And those costs, the the real important thing to realize with those, and they're sometimes called additional rent, triple net costs, uh, additional rent, there's all types of different names. But the essence of it is that the tenant pays for all those costs and any increases in those costs. So if property taxes go up 10% next year, the tenant will pay that additional amount. And that really protects the landlord from eroding their profit or the amount that they have coming in. Because you can appreciate if you did a 
five-year gross lease with a residential tenant, and I, I understand that's probably very unlikely, but if you did do a five-year gross lease, if property taxes or common area uh, maintenance or management fees or insurance goes up incredibly, that starts eroding the amount of money that the landlord collects. So that's the beauty of industrial real estate is that you can have a 10-year lease but it's structured such a way that if there are any increases, those all get passed through to the tenant. For the industrial side of things, what makes the location of one more desirable than the location of another? There's a lot that goes into it from the standpoint that every tenant is going to look at it a little bit differently and every tenant is going to have different needs. And perhaps I could even just break down the different categories of industrial real estate real quickly, just to to elaborate on that and to try to answer that question somewhat intelligently if I can. Uh, So there's usually three types of of industrial real estate. There's manufacturing properties, there's warehouses, and there's flex properties. The manufacturing properties, big buildings where things are made, manufactured, produced. You can picture like a big assembly plant where something comes into it, it's manufactured, produced, people are working on the stuff, something happens to that raw good or semi-raw good, and then it gets upgraded to something else and then it gets sent out. That's manufacturing properties. Warehouses are typically where things are just stored. So a big Amazon distribution center, everything comes into the center, it's packaged, resorted, sent out in different places. That's a big, that's a warehouse. And then the third is flex properties. That's all the properties that are zoned industrial, but not necessarily compatible for either manufacturing or warehousing properties. So surprisingly, what what a lot of people don't realize right off the bat is that you can have churches and industrial properties, office space, bottle depots, self-storage, art galleries, you name it. There's all types of different uses that can theoretically go into a, a flex property. So each one of those uses will have different companies that are looking to operate in there. So if we were to look just at like a, at a warehouse space like Amazon, Amazon's traditionally going to want to be near major metropolitan areas where their customer base is. So they probably want to be close to some sort of intermodal yard, whether it's like a truck yard where things come in on on rail and then they get offloaded on the semi trucks. They'll probably want to be located somewhere in between an intermodal yard and all their residential base. But other companies will have completely different things depending on where their customers are, where their suppliers are, where their employees are. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I think that underscores just one of the importance, important points of industrial real estate is that it can be very complex. So it's not necessarily something that someone can just jump into and say, I want to start investing in industrial real estate. There, there's still a pretty steep learning curve that people have to really understand what they're getting into to make sure they're not potentially putting their money at risk. What's the riskiest part of industrial In my mind, the riskiest part of industrial is a property that was specifically built for one company and it gets sold to an investor with some amount of term left on it. And I can, I can count probably a dozen different examples of this, of properties that were built for one company and then the property owner sells it as an investment. So let's say there's five years or 10 years left on the lease and somebody buys that property. And then in five or 10 years, that company decides that they don't need that property anymore. So they inform the new owner that they're not going to be leasing any further. And now the owner has a property that was specifically built for that one type of tenant. 
And often the cost of retrofitting it to make it compatible for the next user that can go in there is enormous. And there can also be a lot of time that goes by before they actually find a new tenant. So for an investor who doesn't fully understand what industrial real estate is and what limitations might be there, if they buy a property that has, let's just say five years left on the tenant uh, tenancy, and if that tenant leaves, they might lose 100% of their income, which would undoubtedly affect the underlying value of that asset. They could also take them a lot of time and a lot of money to attract that next tenant. So that's not common in multifamily or really any other asset class. It's unique to industrial real estate where you have to have a very solid understanding of what you're buying, irrespective of that cash flow that might be there. As good as it looks right now, at some point, every tenant leaves the building. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Let's say if you had a specific property built for that one specific tenant or the company, what does it take to rezone it or to reconstruct it so that you're able to accommodate a new tenant? I'd say case by case basis, but it can be significant. And one example that comes to mind is there's a property in my market. It was about an 80,000 square foot building and it was custom built for a fiberglass company. So the process involved in making fiberglass is quite extensive and it involves a lot of custom machinery, a lot of custom build out. There was uh, even large cutouts on the concrete floor where some of the byproduct went into like a sub-basement. And when that fiberglass company uh, they closed down because their their manufacturing got outsourced. When they had to go to find another tenant, it ended up costing them somewhere in the in the ballpark of two million dollars to fill in all the holes in the concrete, fix all the things that were there specifically for that company. And that was a large property, so it's that two million dollar number might seem extensive in comparison. But can you imagine a property owner that bought that property with five years left in there and had no expectation that they would have to incur a cost of that? And then five years later, when the company shuts down, they have to incur that cost. So I'd say case by case basis. And not every property is going to be like that either. Like there are some, I'd say the majority of the market is actually relatively cookie cutter, where one tenant leaves, you can backfill it with another type of tenant with reasonable upgrades might be some cosmetic work there might be a few few things that have to go but nothing to the extent of what that glass uh, fiberglass manufacturing facility had but it's still people still need to be aware of that and that's where the risk is that's that's where a inexperienced or investor that rushes into it can make a tragic mistake that could like I, i couldn't afford to buy a property and throw $2 million in it to fix it. Like that would completely unravel my entire business plan as an investor. So I I, th- I think it's just, it's incumbent on any investor, 
regardless of what field that they get into, whether they're investing in stocks or real estate or whatever it is, you have to make an educated decision. And industrial real estate is just unique in the standpoint that there really isn't a good textbook on what you can pick up to say, these are all the things I need to be aware of. Here's all the pitfalls that can come. There really isn't that textbook. So it, it just, it's a steeper learning curve and there's more onus on the individual to find that information on them on their own. Like in multifamily or in the residential real estate space, you have the leases based off of like a year by year basis, and you're able to increase the rents over time and then base it and bring it up to the market value. Is that the same thing with industrial? But if you're signed on for a five to seven year lease, how does that, is the rents for that property or that specific unit, is that going to be increased over time as well? Or is it just staying flat through the entire lease period? Yeah, great question. And and I suppose it is a double-edged sword. On, on one hand, you have the comfort of knowing that you have a tenant that could be in there for five years, but you're right. You are going to have contractually obligated lease payments. So there, it's quite, it's common in industrial to actually have escalations in the lease. So it's typically quoted on a per square foot basis. So if somebody's leasing, call it a 50,000 square foot warehouse, they might be paying $8 a square foot. And it's common to see over a five-year term that maybe goes 8 to 8.25 to 8.50, escalating 25 cents per square foot per year. It's also in this high inflationary environment that we've seen lately. Some landlords have actually started putting in an escalation tied to CPI. So the it might be $8 a square foot plus whatever CPI numbers are uh, readjusted every year. But you're right. If Once that lease is agreed to, if it's a five-year lease, those numbers are agreed to right up front versus residential. If, if the market's really hot, you might be able to increase 20% a year uh, if the market's going really crazy where you, you don't have that luxury in, in industrial and commercial in general. Typically, how is an industrial property, how is that typically evaluated in terms of the value when you purchase it and then on the exit? Every investor will have some sort of internal measure that they use, which will be unique to them. But there's a lot of common principles, especially from an appraisal standpoint, which anybody buying you know, an industrial property, if they're getting financing, having a, an appraisal will be a condition of, of any financing anyways. So there's some appraisal techniques which are common in any market in California where you are, to New York, to Canada where I am. They're, the appraisal principles are going to be very similar. So there'll be a cost approach. What does it cost to build a property similar to this? Perhaps you take off some depreciation for how old the property is. There's a sales comparison approach. Have there been any properties that have sold very similar to this that we can compare side by side? The most common one I would say would be the the income approach, which is figuring out what the prevailing cap rate is for the industry determining how much net operating income is coming into the property, and then just uh, dividing the NOI by the cap rate. That gives you somewhat reasonable expectation of value, but everybody's going to look at it some, somewhat differently. A seller might just say, I just think my property is worth X. So maybe that number is $5 million. They're just going to ask $5 million. They might just have literally pulled the number out of thin air whereas a buyer might go and underwrite it completely differently. And there's some advanced techniques. Someone might go through like a full underwriting, including discounted cash flow analysis, determining an internal rate of return, net present value, making a number of assumptions along the way, and they might arrive at a different number. But just like any market, it's in my mind anyways, uh, the value of a property is only worth what 
a buyer is willing to pay and what a seller is willing to accept. And that's really what determines the market in my narrow line of thinking anyways. So how does it typically work, especially like if you are, let's say you just recently purchased this property, there's a tenant in there for, you know, seven years. And then over time, if you have a contractual obligation to pay for the lease, isn't is the property still worth the same thing because the operating incomes is still going to be consistent over a period of time, maybe increase a little bit with the increase provision inside that contract? So then how does that work at the end when you're looking to sell it to the next seller? Yeah, and that just underscores the complexity of real estate in general is that two different buyers might look at that scenario completely differently. One buyer might look at it and say, perhaps there's two years left in the lease that they buy it. And they might say, well, in two years, I'm going to have a vacant property. So I think this property is going to be worth less. Another buyer might say, well, in two years when this is vacant, I think the market rates are going to be even higher. So I'm going to value this property even higher. And I think the varying degrees of opinion is really just what makes a real estate market. There's always going to be people that are very conservative and very cynical. And there's always going to be some faction of the real estate community that's very aggressive. And and they just think that the there's always going to be that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So it's it's really a varying degree of opinions and perspectives on what's going to work. And I, I really couldn't say one way or the other who's right, other than I'm a big believer that over the long term, in my career anyways, real estate trends upwards, but there's always short-term aberrations, which can be painful for investors to go through. So I take a long-term approach and always think that over time, it's going to get better. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that you buy the wrong property, whatever it is, you buy the wrong investment in anything. If you don't have the holding power to weather those storms, and it could be like that scenario where in two years, we really don't know what the market's going to be like in two years. If you don't have a plan to get through any storm, it could be really ugly. So that's not a great answer to your question on that, but I just, I don't really think they're there is a perfect answer to that. So Chad, do you focus primarily on industrial or do you also do other things within real estate as well? Other asset classes? I'm exclusively industrial myself. And and that's from the standpoint that it's the market is so vast and not just for industrial, but for all the asset classes that I just prefer to be an expert in one as opposed to trying to cover too many things and diluting the energy and effort that I can put into it. And to just give some context on how large the market is, because I, I was just researching this the other day, there was a report by uh, NARIT, which is the association which covers all the real estate investment trusts. So the data was about a year and change old, but the industrial real estate market in just the US is about 20, uh, 21 and a half billion square feet. There's just an astronomical number to think that someone could even comprehensively cover just the industrial market is hard to believe. But if you start trying to add in following other asset classes as well, it just becomes that much more challenging. So there are people that certainly can, they've, they have a much better memory than me and they're able to retain a lot more stuff. But for, for myself, the limited amount of attention and bandwidth that I have, I choose to focus just on, on industrial. And so Chad, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? I would say mostly positive, but there there are undoubtedly drawbacks to it. I've made a number of sacrifices uh, along the way when I, even before I started, because I had to start saving up money to have the right amount to put down as a deposit. 
And still to this day, we've got another property that we have under contract right now. And I'm earmarking money that I would love to use to purchase a vacation home. But I'm saying I want to own more real estate for the long term. And I would rather have an income producing asset as opposed to something that I'm contributing to. So overall positive, our portfolio has done well. Uh, it, it generates cash flow. We're paying off principal every month, but there's there's been sacrifices that I made all along the way and continue to make. So it'll be a good question for me to reflect on 15 years from now when I'm looking to start drawing on that money for a living. But as of right now, positive, I still love doing it. I, I'm passionate about it, but it comes with sacrifices. And if there's one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? Money is so powerful. And as obvious and cliche as that sounds, I didn't have a full appreciation for that when I was younger, getting started at just how powerful it is to have uh, money to put down to buy a slightly bigger property or to deploy into multiple different assets. I actually make more sacrifices now in my career uh, than when I did when I first started out. The car that I had when I first started in 2005 is a nicer car than I drive right now. Uh, and I have the money to go uh, buy a car, but I, that sacrifice I didn't make when I was younger. So it, had I the opportunity to start all over again, I would have made sacrifices much earlier in my career. And so, Chad, what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? Great question. I would say a long-term outlook would be my number one separator from a inexperienced or poor investor from one that's had success is the successful investor always looks at long-term outlook irrespective of any short-term aberrations that come, they're always looking what's 10 years out or what's even 20 years out as opposed to buying a property to have to rely on that income next year. And there's undoubtedly investors that are successful with flipping properties and provided they don't need to rely on that income, but it's more of a, a mechanism for them to make additional income or it's sport for them, or it's just fun. The investor that has to flip next year, I think that it can work for a while, but eventually they'll hit a roadblock. Whereas a long-term investor, in theory, at least these short-term fluctuations shouldn't have any marking on their long-term objective. Awesome. Well, Chad, is there anything else as investors in industrial real estate that we should know about or that you want to bring up? I would say just be cognizant of the risk. There's a lot of upside that can come to it. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why industrial can be a, a lucrative asset class, but just be aware that there is a risk that comes with it. So if you are interested in being an investor, I would say be a student of the market, start really understanding your local market, what's happening with vacancies and rental rates, who's moving into the market, who's moving out of the market, what are some major trends going on, really become a student of the market. And then ideally look to partner with somebody in your local market that has done it before that you can absorb all their information, perhaps even learn from some of the mistakes that they made so you don't have to do it. But I think if you are a student of the game and you really excel at trying to learn as much as you can and you partner with someone that's had some success, I think it's a, it's a winning recipe. Awesome. Well, Chad, thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
And if our listeners also want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where's the best place that they can go? So as you could tell, I love talking about industrial <laughs> real estate. So I, I have a YouTube channel as well, where I talk about uh, industrial real estate more on a broad sense. So just talking about some of the things that people should be aware of, that's, that's not a replacement for local market knowledge. And, and I can't possibly keep track of, of every single market. So I don't try to be a specialist in that field, but more from just a high level, here's some things you want to know. Uh, and, and that can help round out some of the knowledge. But uh, again, it certainly doesn't replace the value of just getting in being a mark an expert in your market but yeah i'd love talking about it so my channel is chad griffiths cre and uh i think i've done over 150 videos right oh, now wow. you can believe it yeah it's crazy <laughs> awesome so definitely check out his youtube channel and chad thank you so much again for being on our show today great questions eileen that thanks so much for having me as a guest and thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by bonavis capital we would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.